boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with Diana O'Carroll this week. Hello, Diana. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, scientists have discovered, it turns out, what turns sperm on. And this is a finding that could hold the key to new contraceptives or even ways to help some people who have problems with infertility. Also, how researchers have recreated a dinosaur in all of its colourful glory and how mosquitoes home in on you. Scientists have decoded the genes that enable mozzies to sniff you out, which could mean better bug repellents and traps are on the way. And what a soothing thought, Diana. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. And also this week, we're looking at how plastics and the substances that leach out of them might be affecting your health. We'll hear how researchers have linked exposure to these chemicals with heart disease, stroke and diabetes, and that most of us have got measurable levels of them in our bodies. We'll also find out what happens when these substances get into the environment, what do they do to wildlife, and is bottled water, at least the stuff that comes in plastic bottles, also a potential risk. Thank you very much, Diana. And talking of clean water, for this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave are going to be finding out how a worktop kitchen water filter, try saying that quickly, creates a sparkling cup of tea, and also Mira has been off to the glamorous sewage works to find out how Cambridge deals with all of its waste. That's all coming up. If you have any questions or comments or feedback, then do get in touch. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can Twitter at us. It's at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist, with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Diane O'Carroll. Now, this week, scientists have discovered the mechanism that actually starts sperm swimming once they get out of a male and inside a female. Now, most people think of sperm as cells that are vigorously dashing around all the time in search of an egg to fertilise, but that isn't actually true. Sperm spend most of their time in a quiescent state, conserving their energy for when they do actually get inside the female of any species so that they can then start the great egg race, for want of a better phrase. How does that work, though? Big mystery. No one really ever understood it. But now a group of researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, and this is Paulina Lishko and her colleagues, have published a paper in the journal Cell this week where they find out how it all works. What they did was a very elegant study called patch clamping. This is where you put a tiny pipette onto the side, the membrane of a single cell. In this case, they took human sperm cells, and this enabled them to measure the electrical currents which were going in and out of the cell at different voltages. And what they discovered is a specialised channel. It's called HV1, and this channel, which is also used on some immune cells, lets protons, in other words hydrogen ions, acid out of sperms. And what happens is that this channel opens when the sperm go inside the female genital tract, the, alkal the acid, H+, floods out of the sperm, and this activates the sperm cells. And the channel itself opens in response to both an alkaline environment, also to low levels of zinc, and also in response to another chemical called anandamide. And anandamide is one of the body's natural cannabis-like chemicals. It's produced by egg cells. That's partly how sperm know to find eggs. And interestingly, people who use cannabis often have low levels or sub-fertility. And so it could be that what's happening is that they're fooling their sperm inside their own bodies into activating too soon. And so by the time the sperm actually come out, they're too tired to actually do the job. People often said that they're, they're too laid back to finish the job. It may actually be they're just a bit too tired. But this wonderful study, basically gives us an insight into how sperm get active and that also means that now we can begin to look at this as a prospective way to 
act as a contraceptive. If we make small molecules that could block up these channels, perhaps you could stop sperm getting active and therefore have a reversible form of contraception that maybe men or women could take. And also, some forms of infertility may be directly attributable to this channel not working properly so people's sperm don't become properly motile. And so investigating it from that perspective could also be very helpful. Diana? So wearing out your sperm uh, could be caused by smoking cannabis. That's a warning to all those people out there. Okay, well, also this week, uh, scientists have found that by comparing tiny pigment particles between modern-day birds and fossils, they've rediscovered the colours of a dinosaur that existed 150 million years ago. And they weren't just ginger. So reporting in the journal Science, the latest team, which was led by Yale University, their findings follow beautifully from last week's news of the flame-haired feathered Cynosauropteryx. Now, this study analysed colour-making structures called melanosomes from the whole fossil of a single dinosaur, and they managed to map out a great deal of the pattern of its markings. And the dinosaur in question was Anchionis huxleyi. That's a bit of a mouthful, which had wings, and it had a mohawk-like crest on its head. From their reconstruction, the paleontologists think it would have had a grey body, its crest would have been reddish-brown, and it had facial speckles, or freckles, like me, uh, <laughs> and white feathers on its wings and legs. With you can see now. Why we chose you to the, do the story? You saying I look like a dinosaur? <laughs> no, not at all. Dinosaur, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the way they did this was rather ingenious, actually. Jacob Vinther, who is also from Yale, was studying the ink sac of an ancient squid and realised that microscopic grainy features within the fossil were actually melanosomes, and these contain melanin, which provides pigment in animals. But previously, some scientists had thought these granules were just some really rather boring ancient bacteria, but not anymore. And the team looked at 29 feather samples from the fossil and they measured and mapped out these melanosomes. They then compared these with the types of melanosomes known to create particular colours in living birds, and that was using data compiled by a group at the University of Akron. And the analysis showed um, what the analysis allowed them to say with about 90% certainty, which is quite a lot, that these are, in fact, the colours of the individual feathers of a dinosaur. It's ingenious, isn't it? Because presumably because birds are the closest living relatives of dinosaurs today, they're they're the direct descendants. It's therefore reasonable to say, well, let's look at the structure of these melanosomes, see what colour they impart. And that's therefore going to give us a reasonable proxy of what these dinosaurs' colourations would have been. Well, yeah, what's really exciting about this is that they know that the feathers weren't really performing any uh, practical uh, purpose. They were actually more about attracting mates because they were so brightly coloured. I mean, that's, that's the theory that this has brought about. Because dinosaurs were pretty big. Uh, yes. So they didn't well, necessarily need feathers in order. But these this particular species were quite small, weren't they? Yeah. But then ostriches are flightless, don't they? But they use them to keep them warm. That's the thing. But the uh, if you remember the study from last week, it only had feathers on its head and back. And so it clearly wasn't performing any sort of uh, flight. Or and then they spread over the whole body. Yeah. And genius, we're talking of flying things, horrible flying things. The most dangerous animals in the world, in fact, are mosquitoes because they transmit malaria. This is Anopheles gambii, which are the mosquitoes that transmit the majority of malaria cases, 300 million cases of malaria per year. But how do they home in on people? That's the big question. They obviously use their antennae, and their antennae are decorated with smell receptors that can pick up tiny traces of the odorants that ooze out of people, and that's how the mosquitoes sniff us out to home in on basically their lunch. But... What particular jobs do each of those chemical receptors do? What do they track down? How do they work? Well, there's a very elegant paper in the journal Nature this week. It's by Alison Carey and her colleagues. She's based at Yale. And what she did was to take all 70 of the genes that make these particular smell receptors in mosquitoes and clone them, copy them, one by one, individually, into a species of fruit fly, which is a mutant 
which doesn't naturally have a sense of smell because it's got no genes that work in its antennae. So by putting each of these mosquito genes into the fruit fly antennae, what they're able to do is give a sense of smell to the fruit fly but only able to smell whatever that one gene would make a mosquito smell. That must have been so painstaking. I think it probably was very <laughs> painful to do. But it's an amazing study because what they then did was to present 110 different smell molecules, one after another, to each of these flies and record the electrical activity from the antennae to work out exactly what chemicals each of these genes make receptors respond to. So that's over 7,000 possible combinations? Thousands of them. Wow. But what they've therefore been able to do is to produce what we call the olfactory spectrum that the mosquito responds to. So we now know which of the genes respond to which particular smells in what particular way. They identified 27 of these genes which specifically help the mosquitoes to smell things like components in human sweat and also chemicals that bacteria that live on the skin produce, so volatiles that bacteria pump out. Because the bacteria go with the people, the mosquitoes are smelling the bacteria but therefore indirectly sniffing out the people. And what they're hoping is to use this as a way to build better repellents or even better mosquito traps in future because they now know the structures and the genes for all these receptors. And as co-author John Carlson says, we're now screening for compounds that interact with these receptors. Compounds that jam the receptors could impair the ability of mosquitoes to find us whilst compounds that excite the receptors could help to lure mosquitoes into traps or even to repel them. And the best lures or repellents will probably end up being multiple cocktails of these compounds. So a wonderful study which could help to tackle what it turns out is the most dangerous animal on Earth. Well, this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. And this week we're going to be talking about what plastics could be leaching out into the environment and how it could impact on your health. If you'd like to join in, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com and you can Twitter at us too. It's at Naked Scientists. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Now, this week's show is all about the pollutants that get into water and therefore also into our bodies, and in particular chemicals that can leach out from the tonnes and tonnes of plastic that we're using every single day. And Tamara Galloway is the Professor of Ecotoxicology at Exeter University, and she's been looking at the effect of just one of these plastic-based chemicals. We've been interested in a compound um, called bisphenol A for some time now because it's highly controversial. It was first produced around about the 1950s, and at that time it was produced as an artificial oestrogen. But it was then found that actually it was a very useful monomer for making a range of uh, plastics, particularly a kind of plastic called polycarbonate. Now, this is a hugely useful compound because um, it makes very clear, rigid plastic, which is good for reusable containers. Previously, it was thought that this compound was extremely safe. However, more recently, results from animal health studies and laboratory studies have suggested that it could be having estrogenic effects. So that is, it's acting like a hormone in the body. Where would we find this stuff out there in the world or in the environment around us? Well, polycarbonate plastic is found in a range of rigid containers that are used for things like reusable drinks bottles. Bisphenol A is also used to make epoxy resins, and these are most commonly encountered as the lining of tin cans. So th these are the two places that probably most humans are exposed to bisphenol A. And the evidence is that this stuff, being in the environment and ubiquitous around us, and in these food containers, can get into our bodies? 
Yes. Um, more recent research done in America by the Center for Disease Control has shown that something like 95% of the population has measurable levels of bisphenol A in their bodies. And they work this out by measuring bisphenol A in urine samples because what goes into your body you have to pass out. What do we think this stuff does when it comes out of a food container or, or whatever and gets into our bodies? Is it there in meaningful amounts? Well, the evidence has always suggested that it passes through our bodies very quickly. So we rapidly metabolise it and excrete it out in the urine within a matter of hours. So that combined with earlier um, studies that suggested it was very safe meant that it wasn't really much of a public health issue. But more recent studies have suggested that at very low concentrations, it could be having an effect as an oestrogen in many animal model studies. And why is that bad? That's bad because oestrogen's a good hormone. It promotes growth and it, it promotes healthy reproduction. But if it's there at the wrong time and in the wrong place, then it can lead to adverse consequences. Such as? Such as if it's there at the wrong time in development, oestrogen can lead to feminization. So if there's not enough testosterone and there's more oestrogen, you get feminizing effects. And, and how are you trying to find out when people are exposed to these things, what those health consequences could be? Well, we, we were very interested to know not just what happens in early life, but what happens in the general adult population. We were able to take advantage of a study done in America called the Nutrition and Health Examination Survey. And this is a really fantastic program where tens of thousands of American volunteers have had all aspects of their health and nutrition studied. Since um, the 1980s, this has included the measurement of a whole range of different chemical compounds. And since 2003, it's also included bisphenol A. Now, one of the problems if you're trying to look for very small effects is that you need very large populations to be able to see them. So this large population offered us the opportunity to search for adverse health effects. So what you're basically doing is you've got a very big cohort of people. You can then stratify them according to potential exposure or, or, or the amount of bisphenol A that's in them. You can measure that that's from urine, right. for example, and yes. you can then marry that up with medical history. Have they got condition X, Y or Z and see if there's any relationship? That's perfectly correct. And we had, um, we had a lot of history on the actual health conditions that the people were suffering, but also a range of different biochemical measurements and laboratory measurements on the individual sort of proteins and hormones in their bodies. And when you do that study, what sort of relationships emerge? Well, quite surprisingly, when we did this study, what we found was that there was a strong association between um, increased exposure to bisphenol A, as evidenced by measuring concentrations in the urine, and the presence or the reporting of cardiovascular disease, of diabetes, and of changes in liver enzyme function. Is it not possible that people who just eat a lot and therefore are being incidentally exposed to large amounts of bisphenol A because they're getting a lot of fast food out of food packets and things, that accounts for the fact that they have large amounts of it in their body. And because they're put on a bit too much weight, that elevates their stroke and diabetes and cardiovascular risk. Absolutely. Well, of course, that was our first thought. But we went back and controlled the data extremely carefully for body mass index, for diet, for um, socioeconomic position, for all of the usual things that might confound this kind of result. And these associations remained robust throughout. So what that meant was that the 25% of the population with the highest exposure to bisphenol A had over a twofold increase in risk of cardiovascular disease compared to those in the bottom 25%. And that's quite a big increase in risk. 
It certainly is. Obviously, this is an association. Not It's not causal. You don't prove Abs- that one thing leads to the other. When you report this kind of association, in scientific terms, the most important thing to do next is to show that you can see the same association in a completely separate population. That's called replication, and it makes it much less likely that the results that you saw first time were the result of chance. So we went back. Um, the American study had published a second wave of data in September of this year, and we went and examined the study again to see if we could see the same associations. And we did. So that makes it very unlikely to be a matter of chance. This, presumably, when people hear this, they find quite alarming, don't they? And they're thinking, well, how do I avoid getting exposed to these chemicals? Have I been exposed? What can I do to minimise my exposure? And is it too late? Well, there's a a second good news part of this story, and that's that between the first study and the second study, the level of exposure in the general population in America had fallen by 30%. We're not entirely sure. We can't say exactly why that is, but it's most probably because of changes in manufacturing processes from companies who are saying, well, you know, there's all this concern over bisphenol A. It's not been regulated against at the moment, but let's change our formulation so that the compound is used less. The other good news story is that bisphenol A does seem to be rapidly metabolised in the body. So if you remove the exposure, it will quite rapidly disappear from the body. So it's not saying if, you, if you've been exposed, then that concentration will always remain within you. Which is reassuring. That was Tamara Galloway. She's at the University of Exeter. And although they aren't sure yet what the mechanism for these health effects, the heart disease, diabetes and so on, could actually be, they think it could be related to the hormone-mimicking effects that we know these chemicals can have. And one important point that Tamara also went on to tell me is that they're also very concerned about the amount of plastic that's actually going into and has gone into landfill in the past because these chemicals could now be leaching out into the watercourses and potentially also groundwater and therefore potentially exposing us to trouble in the future. But what would these compounds do to the wildlife in rivers and lakes? Professor Karen Kidd from the University of New Brunswick studies what effect oestrogen-like chemicals have on populations of fish. Hello. Hello. Good to have you on the show with us, Karen. Where do these hormones like oestrogen come from? Well, they're excreted by women. Um, We excrete a number of natural estrogens, and we also excrete the estrogen that's used in the birth control pill. So these estrogens are um, going into our municipal wastewater works or treatment works and not being completely broken down in the treatment process. And we're finding very low but effective concentrations of the estrogens in the waters being discharged into our rivers. And um, once the estrogens or oestrogens are in the water, what kind of effect can they have on the wildlife in there, on the fish? Well, we know from a, a great body of work that's been done out of the UK that these estrogens are very effective at impacting or impairing reproduction in fish. In particular, there were a number of studies showing that male fish living downstream of these discharges were becoming feminized. And when I say feminized, I mean the males were producing early stage eggs or producing egg proteins or developing smaller gonads. And uh, there was a great deal of detective work to try and figure out what it was in the in the river waters that was causing this feminization. And these uh, researchers at Exeter and Brunel and the EPA discovered that it was indeed these 
natural and synthetic estrogens that women were excreting that was causing the feminization in the male fish. So this wasn't just affecting uh, juvenile fish, this was affecting adult male fish? This was, yes, it was impairing their ability to produce sperm and to fertilize eggs. And it was also changing their external maleness, so they were less macho-looking, I guess you would say. So what was the effect on these particular species of fish and then other fish that perhaps fed on them? Well, one of the questions that was outstanding um, was what does it mean for th- to have feminized male fish in the population? And there there have been a number of studies since then, like that work in the UK really motivated a lot of work in North America as well, where we've found male fish in a number of our rivers that have become feminized because of the estrogens. But the big question that we wanted to answer with our study is, well, what what does that mean to have feminized males in your population? Um, Can they still successfully reproduce? Or are you going to have fewer fish in the rivers because of these continuous low inputs of estrogens and estrogen mimics? So So how did you do your specific study? Well, there's a research station in Canada. It's run by the federal government, and it's quite a unique facility because we have a series of lakes that we've set aside for research purposes. So there's no development in the watershed. There's no commercial or sports fishing. And what we can do is study the lake in its natural state for a few years and then add in chemicals or some other stressors and look specifically at what those stressors do to the ecosystem. And in this case, we did um, a whole lake experiment where we took the estrogen that's used in the birth control pill, we added it into the lake at levels that are very low, um, but what's been measured in municipal wastewaters. And then we, we followed how the fish responded at the biochemical level, at the tissue level, and the organism and population level. So you found that obviously the, the male fish were becoming feminized. So first of all, what happened to these that species of fish where the males were becoming feminized? And then what happened to the predator fish that ate them? Well, the, right away, the male fish in the lake started to respond to the estrogen. So they started producing egg proteins and they developed early stage eggs. And then only after two summers of additions of the estrogen, we saw reproductive problems. The the fathead minnow, which is a small-bodied fish in the lake, stopped reproducing and the numbers of of individuals in the lake basically collapsed. And so we showed that it didn't take very long for this very short-lived species to respond to small amounts of the estrogen. And then what was surprising to us was not just how quickly these fish responded to the estrogen, but also the impacts that the loss of this fish species had on others in the lake. And in this case, what happened is the bigger predators in the lake, their numbers also started to decline. And it wasn't because they were getting exposed to the estrogens. It was because the bigger fish were losing their prey species. So they were becoming skinnier and they stopped reproducing as a result. So this is showing us that you can have impacts of estrogens on fish directly um, that interferes with their reproduction, but also you can impact fish populations indirectly through the loss of their food source. So once the population had gone into decline, what did you do then? Did you remove the oestrogen and find out what would happen as soon as the levels went back to normal? 
We did. We added the estrogen for three summers and then stopped and followed the lake through recovery. And the first two summers after we stopped adding the estrogen, the fathead minnow populations, the numbers were still very low. And then in the third year of recovery, they rebounded. So basically, the the numbers of fathead minnow in the lake were back to what they were before we started the experiment. And this was great news because, like in the case of bisphenol A, it's showing that your exposure, once you remove the exposure, your effects go away, basically. So there can be recovery in systems once you take estrogens out. So they can recover very quickly, but what do you think the solution might be? I mean, currently sewerage works don't remove estrogen from wastewater. What do you think we could do to improve the situation? Well, they do remove quite a bit of estrogens. Um, They know probably 80 to 90% of the estrogens can be taken out when the wastewaters are treated with at least secondary treatment. The challenge is that in some cases, there's accidental overflow of systems when when wastewater treatment works get overwhelmed with stormwaters. Some areas, there's only um, very rudimentary treatment of wastewaters. And it also seems to be more of a problem when river flow is made up of primarily of wastewater discharge. So the more people you have along a river, the more municipal wastewater that's being discharged, the the greater the likelihood of of impacting fish health from estrogens is. So we do know that it can be removed, um, and the more you treat it, uh, the more effective you are at removing estrogens from the wastewaters. Let's hope it happens more all over the globe. Thank you very much, Karen. That was Professor Karen Kidd from the University of New Brunswick explaining how chemicals that mimic the effects of hormones like estrogen have an impact on aquatic ecosystems. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Diana. We heard from Silverwing Benoit, who's listening to the programme in Second Life. Hello to all of you. He was referring to our sperm story earlier with the new channel HV1 that allows protons out of sperm and makes them speed up. And he says, if you reverse the polarity, do the sperm go backwards? I'm not sure if they tested that, but my thought would be probably not because they're turning the sperm from something that's inactive to something that's active. But it's a good thought. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. If you would like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Thank you, Diana. Now, we're talking about environmental pollution and how these chemicals can impact on human health and animal health this week. And Martin Wagner is at the University of Frankfurt, and he and his colleagues have been looking at an oestrogen-like chemical that can leach out of bottles that are made of the substance PET, polyterophthalate. That's the sort of bottles that you buy mineral water in. So people are obviously worried. Mineral water has become very, very popular in recent years, especially in some countries. People are almost glued to bottles of the stuff. It's always in their hands. What could be the impact on their health? Hello, Martin. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Could you tell us a bit about the studies you've been doing to to try and find out how these sorts of plastics could be affecting people? 
Yeah, we basically we used uh, in vitro bioassay for detecting um, estrogenic activity, and it's a pretty simple system where you have a genetically modified yeast uh, that expresses the human estrogen receptor, and thereby you can use it just for detecting all compounds that bind and activate our estrogen receptor. And normally you're using this for let's say, um, effluence um, of sewage uh, works and just to detect the level of estrogenicity in environmental samples. Oh, I see. So quite clever. You have genetically modified a yeast cell so that the yeast cell can see estrogen and then presumably change colour or something so that you've got a readout of whenever there's estrogen or something that has estrogen-like effect in the water, you can see it. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. And since... Since everybody was using it for environmental water samples, we thought, oh, why why don't we test all our favorite mineral water brands and have a look into that? So it was in the beginning more like a fun experiment we did at the lab. And of course, we didn't expect to find some estrogenic activity in mineral water because it's, you know, mineral water is just minerals dissolved in water. But then in the first experiment, we had really highly positive samples, meaning that we were able to de- uh, detect estrogenicity in these mineral water samples. And then we took a deeper look into that and we got funding for that and continued our work. Yeah. So if you look at these, I'm thinking there are some brands of mineral water that come in plastic bottles. There are others that come in glass bottles. Some come in both. So that would presumably give you a really quite a neat way to compare, wouldn't it? You could look at the same brand of water in both yeah. plastic and glass. Yeah. What we did was we just went to the supermarkets and we bought 20 samples of uh, 20 brands of mineral water here in Germany and just looked at the estrogenicity and half of it was packed in plastic and the other half was packed in glass bottles. What did you find? So it was quite surprising to us that we found a really high estrogenicity in these mineral water samples and in almost all mineral water samples, you can detect significant estrogenic activity. 60% of the samples were positive. And what what was striking to us was that in most of the plas- water coming from plastic bottles, we detected estrogenicity where we only had free waters from glass bottles where we could detect some levels of, of estrogen activity. So the, the assumption is that the estrogen-like chemicals are coming out of whatever's in the plastic, they're getting into the water and your yeast is seeing them. Well, what does this tell you about how likely they are to have relevant effects in humans? Because obviously it's one thing to detect a chemical, it's another to demonstrate that it's actually having a physiological effect, in other words, a, a meaningful effect in the body. Yeah, that's that's the Achilles heel of our work that we've done so far. We only detected estrogenicity, so we can't, the yeast can't tell you if it's bisphenol A, for example, it's not very likely that it's bisphenol A or other chemicals. It just tells you something activates the estrogen receptor, some chemical. And it can be a mixture of different uh, chemicals, for example. And so far, we haven't identified the chemicals causing this estrogenic activity in mineral water yet. We are still working on it, and it proves, I must say, really hard because you're looking for really low levels, low concentrations of these chemicals. And, in fact, we don't, we don't know what we are looking for. So we have to do, like, an effect-directed um, chemical analysis, and that's what what we're trying to do right now. Can you not take the contents of the mineral water bottles and then expose them to an animal 
which is a bit bigger than a yeast, um, and therefore see whether they do have at least some effect in animals. Yeah, we conducted a second series of experiments where we we wanted we were asking the question whether the uh, plastic bottle is really releasing some estrogen-like compounds. So we emptied all our bottles and filled estrogen-free water in every uh, plastic bottle and in every glass bottle, and then we uh, inserted the small little snails, New Zealand mud snails, inside that bot- uh, bottles, and we cultured them and took care for them for eight weeks, and. The thing with the snails is that they are really sensitive to estrogens. So if they are exposed to low levels of estrogen-like compounds, they just uh, uh, change their reproductive patterns and we can look at it. So you get one group of snails there in water in glass bottles. You've got another group of snails in the same water put into a plastic bottle and kept for two months. What happens to the snails? Yeah, after that we looked at the reproductive um, output of our snails and we found that the reproduction of snails living in glass bottles was completely normal. But compared to that, snails living in uh, plastic bottles had uh, the double amount of embryos. So they doubled their reproduction just by living in the plastic bottle and that was for us at least a strong evidence that some of these estrogen-like compounds leached out of the plastic packaging material. Which is a worry, isn't it? Just to finish off, Martin, can you comment, therefore, I mean, obviously a snail isn't a person, (laughs) but can you comment on on the relevance of this to humans? Because one thing we're seeing in the world these days is that girls are going into puberty and they're starting menstruation at younger and younger ages all the time. The average age now is about 10. It used to be about 12. And this is within the last 50 years. This is not a genetic change. This is something environmental. Now, obviously, people are better fed, but you can't explain all of it on the basis of nutrition. I think our mineral water um, study provides a good example that we are exposed to lots of these endocrine disruptors of these uh, and, uh, estrogenic compounds from all of different sources. Even if it's even in mineral water, I'm asking myself, uh, is it not also in cheese maybe packed in plastic, for example? So there's a lot of exposure going on, and we don't know really a lot about it. So, but it could definitely be a, a causal link there with Martin, reproductive pro- problems. On, on that point, you know, we must leave it. But thank you very much. That's uh, Dr. Martin uh, Wagner, who's at the University of Frankfurt, who's been growing snails, as you heard, in plastic and glass bottles to see whether there are any hormone-like effects and those snails become much more reprodu- reproductively active when they are in plastic, which is really quite concerning. Diana. Now it's time to join Amira Senthillingham, who has drawn the short straw this week and has been sent somewhere smelly. This week, for some true scientific glamour, I have come along to the Cambridge Sewage Treatment Facility located on Cowley Road in Cambridge. Now with me is Sarah Rowland and Nicola Marvin, both from Anglian Water, and they're going to take me through the various steps, processes, biological treatments that take place here in order to provide Cambridge with clean water. So, first of all, Sarah, tell me a bit about this site. Well, sewage treatment has been carried out on this site since 1895. Now, before that, and we're talking back in Victorian times, everything used to go straight out into the River Cam untreated. Of course, you had dysentery, cholera, the plague, all sorts of nasty things, and Cambridge wasn't a very pleasant place to live in. But come 1895, the Victorians got a real hang of of the idea of sewage treatment, and they started pumping it here into what was called a sewage farm. They used to put it on the land and literally grow crops on it. 
Now we do use natural processes still today, but it's a little bit more sophisticated, and we're treating for um, a population of about 155,000 people every single day. That's the equivalent of about 5 million toilet flushes every single day coming in here to be treated before it goes out clean into the River Cam. We're currently standing at the inlet works, which is very high up, and I've got a good view of the entire sewage works, really. It's a big site, it's 200 acres. So what are um, the various stages that take place here? Well, the first thing we do is screen out all the rags, all the disposable things that people have put down their loo that should be going in the dustbin. Items such as sanitary towels, uh, condoms, anything that people think that they can get down the toilet and seem to like trying to do so should be going in the bin. We take those out first, and then what we start doing is separating out solids from water. So we've got some settlement tanks where everything heavy settles to the bottom, and that goes for separate treatment. And if you follow the, uh, the effluent, the runny side of things, it gets digested using biological processes, using microbes, using bacteria that take out different elements of the sewage. We then settle it again to separate out the microbes, the bacteria from the liquid. We put it through sand filters on the far side of the site, which is a final polishing just to make sure that the effluent's got a kind of a crystal clear quality to it. And then it finally goes out in the river cam. Thanks, Sarah. And now, Nicola, you're one of the service delivery scientists here at the sewage works. You're going to take me over now to one of the trickling filters, which is where the first stage of the bacterial processes takes place. That's right, yeah. Up until now, it's just been all physical processes, so that's where all the guts of the treatment happens. So we've come alongside one of the trickling filters now. Their name is pretty much what they do, so... There's a large pipe that's kind of moving along the top of a large bed of stones and it's trickling water onto the stones. That's right. The water comes through from the top surface and it's stones all the way down through the filter bed. And these are probably about 1.8 to 2 metres deep. The water works its way down through and on the stones we've actually created an environment that the biomass likes to live. The biomass is bacteria. It's made up of hundreds of or thousands of different types of bacteria, animals that eat the bacteria. It's a whole ecosystem in, on its own. So things like uh, the carbonaceous treatment happens at the top. So basically that's the guts of the carbon is removed from the water and then as it works its way down through the bed, the nitrifiers then proliferate. They love it down the bottom because they get to eat all the ammonia that comes from urea urine breaks down to urea which then breaks down to ammonia so things like nitrosomus and little bacteria like that they live down near the bottom so looking at the water coming out now what kind of things do we have left in here as the water moves down through the bed, the natural control mechanism for the bacteria in the bed itself is to get knocked off. By the time it comes out the bottom, we can see that it looks quite dirty, but actually it's fully treated. The bacteria have done most of the treatment job here. They've taken out things like ammonia that um, will cause impact on the watercourse by causing eutrophication later on. If there's too much ammonia and phosphorus in the environment, you get algal blooms and things like that. What then happens to just finally give it a good clean? Straight after the biological uh, treatment, they'll have their own settlement tanks. And that's where we take the biomass, the bacteria, out of the system. We're separating, basically, the solids from the liquid. What are the levels that you consider acceptable, then, for the water to contain of, say, particular contaminants when it's released back into the camp? Now, the standards here at Cambridge are 20 for total suspended solids. That's the amount of bit, basically, left in the water. 15 for BOD, biological chemical demand, and 5 for ammonia. 
As you mentioned, one of the first stages is primary settlement, where some of the more solid waste is kind of settled out and removed. And various biological processes also take place with these solids as well. That's right. They have to go through a digestion stage so that we can actually fully utilise the sludge that's produced and actually make it reusable. So let's take a walk down to the far end of the site where the digesters are. Right. Nicola, we are now surrounded by lots and lots of tanks. They're bigger than two or three storeys high, some of them up to six storeys high. So what is taking place in all of these tanks? Well, we have to blend all the sludge that we create on site, the indigenous sludge, so the primary sludge, solids that we take out of the final settlement tanks from the filters, and then those in turn are blended into the tank that we're standing next to which is a feed tank for the monsal plant and the monsal plant's sort of made up of six large green tanks the first stage of those is at 42 degrees so mesophilic digestion digestion has to happen without air so this part of the process is all anaerobic there's three stages there's um, hydrolysis so you're breaking down the long carbon compounds into smaller chains then there's acetogenesis, which is the bacteria have changed it into a food source for other bacteria, for the methanogens. So then the methanogens are what actually produce the methane. We start off at 42 degrees and then we push it through the rest of the monsal plant at 55, which kills all the pathogens because sewage has got nasties in it, viruses, bacteria that we don't want that cause diseases. So we have to kill them off. We then push through into the two big digesters, the the six-storey high ones, where we gather most of the methane that's produced by the sludge process. Before it it can get to the final stage, we actually have to do what we call dewatering. The sludge comes out as a lovely, crumbly, what we call sludge cake or biosolids. And this sludge cake is then used on agricultural land? That's right. The farmers love it. It's a really good soil conditioner and it's got phosphorus and nitrogen in it the methane that's produced is also used to help power the site. That's right, we run a combined heat and power unit and some boilers off the methane gas that's produced and we can actually backfeed into the national grid. Well now having understood what happens to the solids that are removed and how the water's treated, let's go join Sarah who's on the furthest part of the site now where the effluent that's actually created enters the river cam and we can have a look at how clean it is. Right, hello again Sarah. Hello. So we're now by the final effluent that actually enters the River Cam. First of all, I have to comment on the fact that it smells actually quite nice here. Well, if you think this is our finished product, we don't want this to have any nasty effect on the river. So we did see the water at its original murky stage. Now, how long does it take for it to become this clean? From coming through the front door at the end of works to going out of the back door, shall we say, anywhere between 8 and 10 hours. We've literally squeezed every last drop out of it. We've got rid of all the pollutants that we can. We've harvested all the energy in terms of methane. We've harvested a valuable soil conditioner for the farmers. And we're putting back that final bit, the effluent, in a nice clean state back into the river cam. And we've come on a long way since the Victorians, let's face it. I'm feeling quite smug in my nice warm studio. That was Sarah Rowland and before that Nicola Marvin from Anglia Water talking to Mira Senthillingham on a tour of Cambridge Sewage Treatment Works. And they revealed how the river cam is kept so clean, well at least until May week when the students get to it. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. 
You are listening to The Naked Scientists. It's Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll with you this week. And still to come, our question of the week is on the way. Uh, we'll be finding out if dinosaurs or dinosaurs enjoyed summer at the same time of year as what we call summer now. If you'd like to get in touch through Twitter, you can Twitter at us at Naked Scientists or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com and that's exactly what Nikki from Norfolk did. She wrote to us a little while back saying, listening to The Naked Scientists on a Sunday is as important to me as my Sunday dinner. So thank you for that, Nikki. That's pretty important. But now we join Ben and Dave using kitchen science as an excuse to play in the mud. Seeing as this week's show is all about dirty, polluted water, we thought we would have a look in kitchen science at one of the simplest ways that you can start the process of cleaning water up. So Dave has invited me to his garage to look at a number of ways that you can build a filter at home. So Dave, what's our first technique going to be? Well, the simplest kind of filter we're going to use is basically just a sock. I've got one of my old socks, not too smelly, I hope. <laughs> OK, you're putting your sock over the top of an empty jar, and so clearly we're going to pour some dirty water through that and see how clean the water we collect in the bottom of the jar is. Yep, that's the plan. Uh, we're going to make some really dirty water. So I've just picked up some mud out of the garden. This weather is definitely mud. I'm going to mix that with some water. I'll give, put the lid on, give it a good shake, so we get some really, really dirty water. Now we have to pour our mud cocktail through this sock. It definitely looks cleaner than your original mud cocktail. Yes, it's basically taken out all the big lumps. Um, so anything will go through a sock which is smaller than the gap between the fibres. That's not actually very small. So quite a lot of the mud and the gunk, which is making the water really sort of turbid and dark, is getting through. So what's the next step up? Well, I thought try kitchen paper, because that will let water through it. And it's got smaller holes, I thought. Well, it's pouring through the filter paper down the funnel a lot slower than it poured through your old sock. And some of the water that's coming out still looks quite brown. Is this actually going to be much better than the sock? It should be a bit better to start with because the holes are smaller. However, it tends to get slower and slower and slower because the holes get blocked up by little bits of soil which gum up the holes, so the holes get smaller, which actually means it tends to filter better. So if we put it into another jam jar, um, we should find that it's filtering in much, much slower, but the stuff coming through is much, much cleaner. OK, well, as you said, this is taking a long time. Is there another filtering method that we could try at home? Well, something which is a really good filter for a coarse filter is sand. Sand has got lots and lots of small gaps through it, so it will catch the sort of medium-sized lumps. And also because sand is three-dimensional, there's lots and lots of different routes for the water to get through it. So it's got, essentially got much more area. So there's a lot more holes you have to block up before it gums up and goes very slowly. So with any luck, it ought to go rather faster than the one with just the filter paper. Well, it does seem to be going a lot quicker than the tissue paper on its own. In fact, it's almost overtaken it. And... It does look quite clean. This looks to be almost crystal clear water. So sand is really quite a good filter. Yes, it has this advantage. It doesn't block up nearly as easily as a straight flat filter. It has another advantage that if you pump the water backwards through it, it pushes all the grains apart, which releases all of the stuff which the filter's caught. So it's very easy to clean. It's used in the third world for cleaning water. We have a slightly more sophisticated version. We have a great big thing a metre long or so. And at the bottom, you let bacteria grow, and they tend to eat any organic stuff going through it, including other dangerous bacteria, thus making the water coming out almost safe enough to drink. So these filters are all working very well to get clean but not drinkable water. But another filter that most people would have would be those water filters that you get at home. Now, this is filtering water that comes through your tap, which we already know is drinkable. 
Now, the promotional material for these water filters claims that it softens the water so you're less likely to get lime scale in your kettle, for example, um, but also that it can clear out the imperfections and give you the clearest, most pristine cup of tea that you've ever had. So what's in there? How do they work? Well, I've got one here. Let's chop it open and have a look inside. If you do want to take one of these apart at home, do be very careful because there will be sharp bits of plastic flying around. Dave, of course, as always, is a professional at taking things apart and so is doing it completely safely. So what have you found in there so far? Well, there's a fine fabric mesh on the top which will act a bit like a filter to take out really big lumps. What I think it's really there for is to hold in the more important stuff further inside the filter. And under that there looks to be... Some sort of gravelly grit type stuff. Surely this isn't made out of sand as well. There's two different types of things in this. There's black lumps in it, and there are white lumps. I think the black lumps are carbon. This is called activated carbon. It's basically just lumps of charcoal. What's this activated carbon for? Well, activated carbon is normal charcoal, which has been altered so it has a huge surface area which means if anything has a tendency to stick to carbon, there's a huge surface area for it to do so. So it will find somewhere on that carbon to stick to it, and it will take out sort of organic compounds and things which stick to this carbon. It's called adsorption, sticking things onto the surfaces. So what's the white stuff, the sort of salt grain type stuff? The other thing you get in these are iron exchange polymers. These are polymers which have lots of extra hydrogens kind of floating around on the surface and hydroxyl ions attached to the surface as well. And these can swap for things like calcium in the water and carbonate ions in the water. And hydrogen plus hydroxyl OH groups make H2O water. So you take out dissolved ions in the water, just leaving water. And this is how it makes them softer, because those ions that you get in the water are what makes your water hard. Yeah, that's exactly right. So all of this combined should take your tap water and make it softer and take out some of the impurities to make a much better cup of tea. Well, that's the theory. OK, well, I think I might go and test this theory by putting the kettle on. And that's all we have in Kitchen Science for this week. We'll be back with more very soon. That was Ben Valsler with Dave Ansell finding out how to make an effective water filter using sand or a slightly less effective filter using Dave's old socks. I wouldn't be surprised if that water came out dirtier than it went in. Blech. And uh, you can actually see some of the pictures and the write-up and the science behind it on the website. Dave's worked like a dervish to get it all finished. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. We're talking about uh, what sorts of things can get into your bodies from the environment this week. And we also heard how the sewage plant works. And Dally Waverider, who's listening to us in Second Life, hello again to all of you, says he and his son visited the NYC water treatment plant. Don't you take your children to lovely places? He said there were tomato plants growing everywhere. As you can imagine, the seeds go straight through. (laughs) <laughs> I've got a question here for Karen and it's from Pookie Amsterdam on Second Life and she says uh, can you get mercury poisoning from too much sushi? Well certainly mercury is very, has been very well studied and we know a lot about its effects on human health and there's some great advice available on the website in terms of the types of fish that are safer to eat for example we know that fresh tuna has a lot more mercury in it than canned tuna Swordfish is another one that's high in mercury. Um, We know that bigger, older fish are higher in mercury. So what I would recommend that everyone do is take a look at that advice on the web and choose fish that we know are lower in mercury. Got another question here. It's from Silverwing Benoit, also Second Life. And uh, he says, if human males eat feminized fish, will will they become more feminine too? 
That's a great question, and I've heard that one before. Um, certainly there's a lot of concern about estrogens in the environment and what they're doing to our health, but in this case, we've looked for estrogens in fish muscle and have found no evidence that they are they concentrate in the muscle or any parts of the fish that we eat. So in this case, it's not a risk to human health. It is indeed a relief. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, now, we've got a question here from Ace, uh, who's listening to us in America. She says, hello, naked people. How safe is the wax on apples? She said, I end up eating up to a kilo of apples some days. Wow. Uh, what bugs me is the wax that covers the apples to supposedly preserve them. How safe is this? What actually is it? Well, I, I can't take the credit for answering this question. There's a wonderful answer being provided by Your On, who's in Sweden. He's writing on our forum and says, uh, if you walk into an orchard, pick an apple from a tree, rub that apple on your shirt, you'd notice that it shines, and that's because you've just polished, polished off the natural waxes and also yeast uh, that the apple produces in order to protect its high water content. And without that wax, fruits and vegetables would end up going all dry and nasty. After they've been harvested, apples get washed and brushed to remove leaves and field dirt, and then they get packed in cartons for shopping to your market. And this process removes some of the fruit's original wax coating that actually protects the fruit. So the apple packers reapply a commercial-grade wax, and one pound of that wax can cover as many as 160,000 pieces of fruit. Uh, so, in other words, two drops of it on each apple. The waxes have been used on fruits since the 1920s. They're all made from natural ingredients, certified by the US Food and Drug Administration as safe to eat, and they come from natural sources such as carnauba uh, wax, the leaves of the uh, Brazilian palm, candelia wax, which is derived from a reed-like desert plant of the genus Euphorbia, and also food-grade shellac. So thank you very much for a wonderful answer, and uh, there you go. So the wax is OK, it's all from natural sources. Just before we go into our question of the week, I would also like to say thank you very much to Louise Neal, who wrote to us, sent a nice email, and she says, I really love your show, I learn a lot from them, and they are really interesting. Right, it's time for question of the week and it's time to find out if all the leaves were brown for the dinosaurs too. Dear naked scientists, I am especially curious to know if there was some shift in the seasons a long time ago that if we imposed our calendar system to the time of the dinosaurs, for example, would we still find the seasons similar to autumn occurring around October or would this season have occurred at some point earlier in the year. Best regards, Yasu in Canada. So, did they experience winter, summer and autumn, or fall in America? Hello, my name is Dr John Nudge from the University of Manchester. And to answer this question, we firstly have to understand why we have seasons today. And we have seasons today for a very simple reason, simply because the Earth has tilted. If you remember your globe on your geography teacher's desk, the rotational axis of the Earth actually tilts at an angle of about 23 degrees. Now, if you imagine our tilted Earth revolving around the Sun, when the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the Sun, the southern hemisphere will be tilted away. And when our Earth gets round to the other side of the Sun, the northern hemisphere will be tilted away from the Sun, and the southern hemisphere will be tilted towards it. In the northern hemisphere, we have our summer in June, while the southern hemisphere has its winter in June while the tropical regions around the equator will remain at a pretty constant distance from the sun all the time and therefore experience little seasonal difference. So that's why we have seasons today. Now, we have no reason to believe that this situation was ever any different to this. As far as we know, the Earth has always been tilted at this angle. So in the geological past, for example, in the time of the dinosaurs, we could assume that the temperate areas of the globe experienced the same four seasons that we experience today, so to answer the question, if you impose our calendar on the Jurassic year, 
those dinosaurs living in temperate regions in the northern hemisphere, as we do, experience their summer in June. Those living in the southern hemisphere experience their winters in June. And those living in the tropics experience little seasonal change. And one thing that was different, however, is that the Earth is slowing down on its rotational axis. So that in the time of the dinosaurs, the days were actually shorter, but there were more of them in a year. And a long year with more days in it would mean our calendar wouldn't settle perfectly over the dinosaur year. That said, they probably experience the same annual temperature changes that we do today. And on the forum, RD said that a dinosaur year would have lasted for 380 days rather than the usual 365 and a quarter that we're used to. But from the deep and distant past to an event horizon for next week's question. Hi, I'm Sophie from Chicago, US, and I'd like to know... Is it possible to make the phone call from a black hole? Once you've gotten over your almost infinite wait to press the dial keys, would you be able to make a call from a black hole? Let us know the answer by emailing us. The address is chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can write the answer on the forum and we might just read it out. The address is thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, with this week's Question of the Week. You can find it as a podcast in its own right on iTunes and also from our website, nakedscientist.com slash QO. T-W. I've got a quick question here from John in Warrington. He asks, uh, what about aspartame? What is it and what does it turn into when it gets into the body? Hmm, interesting question. Well, aspartame, the sweetener, works because it's about 200 times sweeter as a molecule than sugar is. But because it contains virtually no calories compared with a large number of calories from sugar you can use it to replace the sweetening things in food that would normally be sugar and therefore cut the number of calories in food. So that's how it can be used to help people lose weight. The worry is whether or not it gets metabolised or broken down in the body into something toxic. So if you look at the molecular structure of, of aspartame, it consists of two amino acids, one of which is called phenylalanine, perfectly healthy there, no problem with that. Another one called aspartic acid, again, very common, no problem there. The two are linked together, though, with a bridge molecule, which is a methyl group, a carbon atom attached to a couple of hydrogens, and that links the two together. But when this molecule goes into your digestive tract, the acid and other chemicals in that environment actually break apart the two amino acids, the phenylalanine and the aspartate, and they get absorbed and they get used in the body in the same way any other amino acid would. But the methyl group actually gets turned into a methanol. And methanol, the other name for it is wood alcohol. We all know that methanol can be harmful to health because when it goes into your body, in itself, methanol is not harmful, but it goes to the liver and the same enzymes that break down alcohol, ethanol, and turn it ultimately into ethanoic acid, vinegar, and it's just excreted. They turn methanol initially into formalin, which is formaldehyde, a fixative, the same stuff you use to embalm bodies, and then ultimately it gets oxidised to make formate or formic acid. This is the same stuff that ants squirt out of their back end, which makes you sting. That's not good because it's very toxic to mitochondria, the powerhouses in our cells. And mitochondria obviously supply energy to cells, and if nerve cells don't have enough energy, they can die. So if you have an intense ingestion of methanol, then the methanol can turn into formalin, and fix your body internally, and also formic acid, which will deactivate your mitochondria, and that means nerve cells can die because they don't have enough energy. The amount of methanol you get from aspartame is very, very low, probably from a a daily intake, probably less than a few milligrams, or probably 10 milligrams of methanol. So probably 
probably trivial, probably not going to harm you, but the jury's out, we just don't know, is really the answer. Well, on that happy note... We've actually run out of time, so thank you very much to our guests this week, uh, Tamara Galloway, Karen Kidd and Martin Wagner, and also to our wonderful production team at The Naked Scientist, Ben Valsall and Miracentha Lingam, Dave Ansell, Tom Simpkins, and co-presenter this week, Diana O'Carroll. We're back next week with a Q&A show, so any science questions you'd like us to try and tackle for you, just send them in. So if you want to know how many organs you can donate and still remain alive, how long a camel can go without a drink, for instance, or whether you can cure hiccups by drinking from the wrong side of glass. All those kind of questions are fair game. Send them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.